Welcome to the Modern Masculinity Podcast, where we delve into the depths of what it means to be a man in today's world, and we explore the real-life challenges and triumphs that you and I face every single day. My name is Hector Santia Esteban, and I come with no answers, only questions for some of the most wise, insightful, and grounded men that I know. So get settled in. You're listening to Modern Masculinity. Fellas, welcome to another episode. And I'm excited to introduce you to another one of the men that I look up to so much in this world, and that's Dr. Kelly Flanagan. And what I love about Dr. Kelly is that he is the new model. He is the new ideal. He is the new framework. When someone thinks of the modern man, Dr. Kelly is someone who comes to mind. And what's exciting is that, yes, he is fit, and yes, he is successful, and yes, he has the wife and the kids and perhaps the picket fence. He's got all these things, but that's not who he is. And I think it's just a big distinction that's coming to me now, and I love that he creates a different framework and offers a new reality and a new perspective through which to look at life, and more specifically, being a man and what that means and everything that comes along with it, because outside of being a man, that's what this show is focused on, but he really helps us to understand how do we live as people and how do we actually thrive in the world and the skin with the experience set with the life that we've been given. How do we make, not only do, but make the best out of who we are? How do we take these raw materials and turn it into something that we truly love? And he's written a couple of books. He's written a world-famous blog. I got to get out of the way here, and I can't wait for you to experience this conversation. So let's get into it. This is Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Modern Masculinity Family, I want you to give a warm welcome to Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Dr. Kelly, thank you for being here. Hector, thank you for having me. Yeah, this is a long time coming, both because we've had it on the schedule, but I have been saying that I would like to have this conversation for even longer than that. Got a chance to get connected with your work through a variety of ways, but most significantly through the Front Row Dads. And so I want to thank you for everything that you've done there. All the worlds of learnings and growth that you have enabled, because selfishly, it's something that's that I've gained a lot of value out of. But our first question always, Dr. Kelly, is what's real for you as a man, as a husband, a father, a business owner, an author? What's real and present for you? What's a challenge or struggle that's coming up? It's a great question. Uh, let me pick one. <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing that's probably feeling most salient for me and for my relationships right now is I am taking a lot of feedback and trying to take it constructively about how much I can be in my own head, solving problems, crafting my next book chapter, nothing malicious, but how that impacts my people, my wife, my kids. And so my focus this year is to bring a higher quality of presence to my people when I'm with them and just to be aware of how much I enjoy thinking <laughs> and creating internally can get in the way of that. And part of that's because I'm an introvert. And so I like to be in my own head. Part of it is because I'm a creative. And so I'm always thinking about the next thing to create, but they deserve my full attention. So I took my daughter out for Valentine's for ice cream and gave her permission. Hey, she calls it dazing off instead of gazing off. She calls it dazing off, which I absolutely love. She's 13 years old, has a great way with words. You catch dad dazing off during this conversation. Let me know. She called me one time. She said, dad, I can tell you're not listening. What are you thinking? And I told her what I was doing in my head, apologized. And we got back to 
it. So that's my focus right now. It's a huge challenge for me, ironically. Dr. Kelly, right? The guy who's such a good listener to everybody. But when I'm in my personal spaces, I also tend to get in my head space and it's a challenge for me. I think you're speaking to something that a lot of men are dealing with and the separation between our, let's call it our lives, is starting to disappear, right? Between work and family and relationships and all of this stuff is melding together where our work is on our phone right next to our kids' pictures. There's no distinct separation between those things. And I think that it's a challenge for a lot of guys. It's a great observation of yours. My family would observe the quality of my attention dropped during COVID when I moved my work entirely home for the first time ever, and it's never moved back. So I work entirely from home now. They would say that you know when those, some of those actual physical boundaries between work and home start to diminish, we just naturally have a tendency to want to stay in a certain headspace. And so just this past month, I moved my office to a different level of the home than we do most of our living on, in part for that reason. And my computer stays down there. I need to get better about my phone staying down there once I'm off of work hours and really trying to create at least a little bit of separation even in the same house. And it's interesting because it's like, we almost don't know what we want. I started working from home because I didn't want to deal with traffic or I didn't want to be driving. Mm -hmm. And I was, like, I was so excited about the fact that my <laughs> commute was through my door. But now if I don't take a moment and reset before I walk through the door, I'm bringing everything that I, all the energy and stress or whatever was from work, I'm bringing it right out into the playroom. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Oh, that I actually had the thoughts where you say that this morning, my commute prior to COVID, I did it one time a week round trip. It was an hour and 15 minute commute. And I had that thought this morning, like, I hated that. And now I guess that windshield time to just be solving some problems or just having some quiet time to listen to some tunes or something. It's an interesting idea to build in a work at home commute into your day. What would that look like? I actually am going to noodle on that a little bit. Yeah. I have a friend who he takes a walk around his block. That's, that's how his great idea. Yeah. That's his commute. I love it. I might steal that. That's very good. <laughs> Dr. Kelly, the reason that you're here is you wrote a book called Lovable and you also have a book that just came out called The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell, which is similar in theme, but this one is a novel. Your previous one is more of a traditional nonfiction, but they all have these common themes. I'm curious, though, to you, what do you see as the thread between those two? Is there a thread that kind of ties together your work between those two pieces? Oh, that's a fantastic question. One of my favorite writers about writing or creators about creating, Stephen Pressfield, he says that your body of work over the course of years and decades is basically circling the drain, right, towards a central theme, a core idea. And when you look back on it, you can see what you were headed toward the whole time. And I would say I'm learning as I go. If you read Lovable and you said, what's Kelly's focus? It would be the concept of shame. The idea that we come into the world with the true self that is worthy of love and belonging. And somewhere we encounter the message that we aren't worthy of love and belonging the way that we are. And so we need to build a false self that's going to go out and earn us the love and belonging we so badly desire. So I would have said shame. My second nonfiction book, and in a lot of ways, my first novel are about the concept of loneliness, which is a little bit different than shame. It's the experience of being unseen and misunderstood, not necessarily told you're not good enough. So maybe it's more loneliness. But I think in the end, at this point at least, when I zoom back and look at it, the common theme across all of that is shame is a certain kind of pain. Loneliness is a certain kind of pain. Rejection is a certain kind of pain. And what do we do to cope with our pain? 
What are the layers of protections that we build up around us to cope with our pain? What is the false self or the ego that we use to manage the pain that we pick up early in our lives? I had the thought recently, I haven't put it into anything yet, but the idea that childhood is the place where we pick up pain and adulthood is the methods we use to cope with that pain for the rest of our lives. And so the childhood sort of ends when you start protecting. That might be seven years old, eight years old, it might be five years old, but that's when your childhood comes to an end and adulthood begins. So I guess, <laughs> just like thinking out loud here, that's what I would say these days. Who knows what I'll say in 10 years, right? Yeah. I'm sure that we could speak to women dealing with shame and loneliness and things, but especially men, I think, are, if nothing else, ill-equipped to acknowledge or recognize, and then the word that's coming is deal with, but doesn't seem appropriate, but to work with these types of things. Why is it that men seem to struggle with shame or isolation? And we'll take it for there. Yeah, it's a great starting point. There's probably countless reasons, but the first thing that comes to mind is that men generally are socialized to go on outward journeys, to go out into the world, to hunt... (laughs) (laughs) to accomplish, to achieve, and so on and so forth. And women traditionally have been more socialized to go on the inward journey, to pay attention to their emotions, to notice what they're thinking, what they're feeling, to sort of go on that inward journey. And the reality is when we're dealing with emotions, things like pain and loneliness and shame, we have to be equipped to go on the inward journey in order to become familiar with those. So in a sense, I think in a lot of ways, guys are a lot more lonely than women. We abandon ourselves to the outward journeys rather than being able to go on to the inward journey and learn to abide with ourselves even. You know what's interesting though is that there's this shift that's happening with masculinity and that's a big reason why we're having this show is that a a thing that's emerged over the first few episodes is that we're not in our father's or our grandfather's world anymore. We're not in their marriage. We're not in their work life and their parenting. Everything is different and so the models and the ideals even, they're not there. The guide, the handbooks haven't really been written. And what seems to be is that men are the quote unquote supposed to be more in touch with their emotions. But then I don't know if it's that they're not doing it right or they're not actually given credit, but still we haven't caught up to the fact of allowing or embracing those things. Or it seems like it hasn't fully caught up yet. I don't know. Maybe that's my own interpretation of it. No, I think that's a great way to put it. I think that the expectations have evolved faster than the tools that we've been given and the awareness. You think about in our culture, expectations can evolve at lightning speed, days, months, weeks. Social media accelerates all of that. The tools necessary to go on the inward journey to sort of have a higher level of emotional intelligence. We're talking about cultivating the muscle of awareness, cultivating the muscle of compassion, of vulnerability. Like these things take generations to grow and to evolve. And so, yeah, I do think like men find themselves with really high expectations and not all the tools we currently need to meet those expectations. You just said something that rocked my expectations, which is that these things happen generationally. And I'm getting upset at myself for not figuring it out in a couple of months or a couple of weeks and trying to undo some of these things that have been stuck. And while we're here talking with you, this self-worth thing, I've been sitting with it so, so much recently because it's come up and it's caused things in our relationships and it's causing all of these issues. And I initially would have just pointed to those problems and said that they're the problem. But as I reflect and I look back, it's this need for validation or need for self-worth. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why 
I thought it would be all right. One breathwork session, we work through that and boom, <laughs> feel better. Yes. Now it's done. And I'm like, it's back and it's back. And it here it keeps, yeah. it seems to keep coming back. And the irony there is we could use the terms masculine energy or feminine energy, but I think as you're pointing out, gender expectations are shifting. So those terms don't feel as useful anymore. But you could say that masculine energy is the equivalent of doing energy, whereas feminine energy is the equivalent of being energy. So doing energy wants to fix, change, transform, move, get from point A to point B. Being energy simply is okay being in point A, doing nothing to it, appreciating it, being curious about it, learning about it. What you're saying is the tendency that we all have, and I think this is men and women, is we want to get to our sense of worthiness with doing energy. I want to go do that retreat. I want to go do that breath work. I want to go do whatever. And then I want to feel worthy on the other side of it. But settling into our worthiness is more an act of being over time than doing it at a certain time. And so we really have to dedicate ourselves to the long haul of doing that settling in. This week, my insecurities flared up and I acted out of integrity. I'm trying to, and I'm trying and, and I know that I have an awareness, but I don't know how to get back to that place. And you're saying it's a being, not a doing. And I'm looking for the thing to do, of course. But it's a tricky thing. <laughs> yeah. So how do we work through that? Or what would you suggest in moments like that? So the thing that I suggest in Lovable is that life presents us over and over again with moments where if we can be in the moment, and you're doing a great job of it, and be present to what's going on inside of us, we'll notice that there's a tape playing, this voice of shame that is saying over and over, we're not good enough, we're not good enough in this way or that way. And what we tend to do when that happens is we hear that voice of shame, and instead of being with it, we kick into doing mode. If I'm not worthy, I need to go do X, Y, and Z in order to become worthy. So it sort of becomes this stunted inward journey. And so what we think is all that's in there is shame. But if we can learn to be with that voice, the voice of shame that says we're not good enough, what we can gradually begin to discover is that voice quiets down or just starts to seem a little bit less accurate, a little bit less true, a little bit less real, quiets down a little bit. And we start to discover that there are other voices whispering underneath it. In Lovable, I call it the voice of grace, the voice of inside of us that has something very different to say about who we are. And when you talk to people who have what you might call spiritual awakenings or mountaintop experiences, this is essentially what they're describing is that those loud first voices suddenly went away and they had an experience of that deeper voice coming from their core saying that they are worthy, that they are lovable. And so for me, it's about over time, repurposing those moments of shame as opportunities to slow down, be listen and start to tune into that other voice. I could give you some examples of that in my life if you'd like. <laughs> yeah. And I think that we have to, at least for me, I never had someone, and of course, there are plenty of people didn't have someone giving those encouraging thoughts, like actually sharing how to give yourself some grace. Early, I was on a recording earlier today and I was sharing some of my challenge and he's like, you know, I didn't have, you know, my parents were great and they did all they can, but there was not that. So I think we have to give it to ourselves first in order for that to creep into our subconscious or maybe not, maybe it's already there and we just need to unlock it. I don't know. I'm curious your thoughts. I just love you brainstorming around that. I think a lot of us had a deficit of it when we were younger. But I also know that we all end up in the same place anyway. So people who got lots of affirmation, that voice of shame in them still gets pretty loud. I don't know that there's a way to bypass that. 
I think we do want to try to affirm ourselves, but what we discover is that it's a, that's a fragile affirmation. We know that we're saying it to ourselves, we, right? We know it's what we want to hear. And so I, I do believe you're right, that there's something already in us, that there is an awareness built into us from the beginning that we are worthy, that we need to tune back into and listen for. And when we do, when we hear it, it doesn't feel like it's us saying something to ourselves. It feels like we're hearing a truth spoken to us. And that's why that process of being is so important to be able to get to the point where we can hear that other voice. Yeah. The ability to distinguish which voices are which has been something that I have tried to lean into more, right? Because you do a lot of mindfulness work and it's great. But then even you start to question some of these voices. I'll give you an example here, okay? And this is one of the most powerful moments in my life. It happened around a podcast interview way back in probably like 2018, just published Lovable. And by this point, I know that if I had to distill down the voice of shame in my head to just a single sentence, it would be, Kelly, you are not interesting enough. Everyone's going to get bored and tune out and move on. You're going to be left alone. You're not interesting enough. Now, I've done my work. I've heard the voice of worthiness within me. Get to this podcast of interview, which is essentially like the biggest one I've been on to that point. My publisher was super excited. And I get to the pre-interview prep with the host. And the very first thing he says to me is, Kelly, you've got to be really interesting. <laughs> you've got to send them home with a dozen punchy takeaways. You've got to bring your best stuff. You've got to be really interesting. And the shame just like it exploded inside of me. Like I couldn't focus. I couldn't think. And so I did what I do. I kicked into protection mode, which is Mr. Dr. Kelly, the expert. And I hung up the phone. The first thought in my head was I completely blew it. I completely blew it. And I was feeling so much shame. And that voice was so loud. I couldn't concentrate on my daughter's piano lesson that I was taking her to. I just couldn't concentrate on anything. I spent three full days practicing being, trying to listen to that voice, stay with it, and hear a different voice underneath of it. And I was on a bike ride about three days later, sitting on a dock, foggy morning, and finally quiet enough inside. And I heard that other voice. And you know what? I expected it. I expected it to say, oh, Kelly, no one noticed. It wasn't your audience. They don't know you. They probably thought it was an A performance. You know, like, ah, oh, it was fine. Quit being so hard on yourself. That's what I would have told myself to make myself feel better. But this voice inside of me said something very different. It said, yeah, Kelly, you blew it but I'm proud of you for getting up there. It's hard to learn on a big stage. Keep being brave. Keep getting up there. And immediately all the shame went away because the voice wasn't telling me how I did. It was telling me who I am. You're brave. Keep doing it. And so that's what I walked away from that doc with today was a sense of worthiness around my bravery. You talked about like we all ending up in the same place. It seems to be... I'm accepting that as true because what seems to happen, regardless of our circumstances that you talk about in your book, we put up these defenses, we put up this castle, we put up this ego, and then we spend the rest of our life trying to unpack them. I know I find myself being upset at that journey or at that juxtaposition that how did I get this trauma? Why, why did I have to deal when that's the beauty? That is it. That's the game is. So can you speak a little bit specifically for a man who I think so much of it is like just toughen up, put it behind you, strap up your boots, move forward, keep going. And I think that it creates this load. We just end up pulling and pulling. A lot of analogies there, but I'm curious your thoughts on how a man might be able to take like this next part of evolution that isn't all about gritting through over and... Yes. The first sentence of The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell is that the past is always behind us, but it is also always within us. And I think that sentence is there for a reason. And I do think that sentence speaks to men 
because I do think that we have used this, put it behind us, it's in the past, you can't change it, which again, doing energy, right? You can't change it, what's the point of focusing on it? What we discover though, is we pay attention to that, is that's just one way, it's just another way of coping. You could drink to not think about it, you could tell yourself it's in the past, so you shouldn't think about it. But what we discover on the inward journey is that the real challenge is to bring all of our life into our awareness and to be able to be with all of it, to be able to have compassion for all of it, to appreciate it, to welcome all of it that has brought us to where we're at. And what you discover is that men who want to take this challenge, who want to go on that hero's journey into themselves, to grow an awareness of their entire story, to embrace the whole story, what they discover is it is so much harder to do (laughs) than actually just gritting your teeth. It is so much stronger to do that. It is so much tougher and braver and so on to do that than just sort of gritting your teeth and going, "Ah, I'm just not going to think about it. Yeah, because I think the gritting your teeth, it leads to resentment. It leads to anger, frustration, and it's not sustainable. I don't think that life doesn't seem to be getting any easier. I don't know that we'll move to a place where all of a sudden all of our problems are ever gone away. It's how do we as men rise to that occasion as opposed to being upset that the challenges, the bar is so high? Well, one thing we can count on about our past, and I can say very few things with absolute certainty, <laughs> but one of the things I think I can say with almost total certainty is that the past will push its way into the present in one form or another. So if we're not bringing awareness to it, if we can't welcome it, we can't work with it. And I think one of the most visible examples for all of us in the last year or so, sadly, was Will Smith at the Oscars. Finished his memoir the day of the Oscars, was very unsettled by the way it finished because he suggested that this part of his past, this version of him he called the general, which is like his fighter, was going to defend the women in his life from abusive men that he had done enough spiritual sort of journeys to overcome that part of him. He'd sort of eliminated it. And I thought, boy, that's a way of saying I disown that part of my past. I don't like that part of me. I'm going to reject that part of me again. And I thought if he doesn't understand that part is still in him, it always will be because we can't uncreate what we've created, then that part of him is going to take charge at some point. It's going to get out of hand. And sure enough, hours later, he's up there on stage slapping Chris Rock. The general showed up. So I think it is, if we want to live to our highest potential, we have to be able to welcome in all of our past so that we can work with it when it shows up. And if we can do that, then we're actually in charge of our lives and free of the past. Yeah, this welcoming of our, let's call it shortcomings or flaws, maybe there's a better term for it. But I think that so much of, let's call it traditional or masculinity is perceived to be is so much of just focusing on your strengths, highlighting only strengths. Men aren't weak. Men aren't flawed. If you have any flaws, then you're less than, as opposed to what you're saying is an accepting and understanding, and perhaps even maybe a utilization. I don't know. Does it go that far? Or is it just an understanding that's there? and then working through it that way. Yeah, I think the end point is a point where you no longer relate to those parts of you as flaws. But as my wife says, her ego was the necessary creation, the necessary version of her she created to get through her teen years and early adulthood, that she doesn't survive without that version of us. So we look at parts of that are inconvenient or hurtful or cause problems for us. And our first reaction is, that's a problem, that's a flaw. But it's actually, it's essential. It was essential. 
And now we need to learn how to integrate that part of us into the life we want to live now. And if we don't learn to integrate it, it'll act out on its own. I do think in the end, we end up actually appreciating those parts as an important part of our history and our story. Yeah, it's the integration piece. It's not the dismembering or the forgetting. It's the integration of it, bringing it to the table, not casting it to the side and pretending it's not there. That's right. Yeah, which I think... The outward journey that men tend to want to go on, we have to be very careful. There are a lot of good outward journeys to go. I love good to go on outward journeys. I love to write books and publish them and market them and all that sort of stuff. But we have to be careful that we're not using the outward journey as a way to avoid the inward journey. Um, there's space for both of those in our lives. We have to create that space. Yeah. Space is an interesting thing. It's interesting that you bring that up. That has been another one of the learnings that I'm really going through. You know, I read The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. And then recently on the Front Row Dad podcast, I think it was credited to Tatiana, but John Roman's wife said that space was the sixth love language. And my wife and I were going through this. I'm the person that when we're in it, we have issues or challenges. Like I'm the kind of chase around the house person. She's the talk it out. Let's figure this out right now. She's the type of like, I need space to process it. And that has caused so many challenges. But I'd love for you to talk about the idea of space, the importance of space, what it means, what it is, why it may be important for guys. Yeah. So the pattern of communication that you're talking about in the marriage research literature is referred to as demand withdraw communication or pursue or distancers. It's really common in relationships. And one of the reasons it's so common is those two stances strengthen the other person's stance, right? So the more you pursue your wife, the more she wants to distance and the more she distance, the more kind of urgent you feel about pursuing her. And so it just, it exacerbates itself. Now, one of the things that I love, I'm also the pursuer tend to be more the pursuer in our marriage. You are as well. One of the things I love about the ways that our concepts of masculinity are evolving is that it used to be understood, even in the research literature, that men were the withdrawers and women were the demanders. They're the ones who want to communicate, whereas men are quiet and stoic and don't want to communicate. But we actually see that the gender differences, when you actually like interview people and talk to people, they're not as dramatic as we think that they are. And what's happening in the demand-withdraw communication pattern is you have two people who are starting to feel unsafe in the relationship, um, and they are trying to soothe that sense of danger, but in opposite ways. So when you hook a couple up to biofeedback equipment and tell them to fight about their most common problem, say, in this case, the husband demands and the wife withdraws, right before the husband demands more communication or the wife withdraws from it, you see both of their biofeedback monitors spike. They both have internal levels of arousal. So what we realize now is that The desire for space is the withdrawer's way to calm themselves down. And the demand for communication is the demander's way to calm themselves down, right? But it's a negotiation of the amount of space in the relationship at that moment. They both need different things. So for couples, we work on the idea that, hey, instead of talking about, are we going to talk now or are we going to talk tomorrow? What if we focus on the fact that you're both feeling unsafe right now? Like, let's have some vulnerability around that. And all of a sudden, you're in a conversation that both people feel like they can have. Yeah, addressing the mutual connection, because it seems like we're on such different wavelengths when actually we might be on the same wavelength, perhaps a different peak or value. I think you get where I'm going here. Ah, this is such great stuff, Dr. Kelly. How does space 
play into that though? Because you mentioned that and I am curious because it's something that I've even heard men need space on their own. Like there was this, I don't remember I was hearing who said it, but they were like these things that guys need at their peak. One of them was also time and space with other guys. How do you think about this idea and have you seen it play out in your life, whether positively or negatively? So I am someone who does ask for a lot of space in our relationship, even though like when there's trouble in our relationship, I want to communicate about it. Generally, when things are good, I want a little more space. That is in part due to the fact that I'm an introvert. So sometimes what looks like men just needing space is really just introverts needing some downtime, some quiet time, some space to be in their own head. Also, men traditionally connect around activities rather than conversations. So men will oftentimes want that space to go do things with other friends. I think that the space that men sometimes ask for is multiply determined. We have to be aware that sometimes it is just a way of saying, I don't want to communicate. I'm not interested in going on that journey with you. I just want to not discuss this anymore. So it can be a way of cutting off conversation and connection and closeness. So I think there's all sorts of reasons that we can discover ourselves wanting space. And again, this is part of the inward journey and growing in emotional intelligence is the moment where you find yourself going, I need a little space. Can you go enough on the inward journey to ascertain why is that? Why am I asking for space right now? Is it a way to take back power? Because withdrawing from communication is a really, most people don't think of it this way, but it's a huge power. If a person chooses to withdraw from communication, there's nothing the other person can do to get them to re-engage. So sometimes it's a way to reestablish power and control when we ask for space. And so I think sometimes it's a way of saying, I need some space. I need space for creativity, right? So it's my way of asking for room to be creative and be my best self. So I think we need to though pause in that moment, be with ourselves and ask ourselves, what's motivating my desire for space right now? And be honest about that. This is so fantastic. And I've got one more question, I guess two. Is there anything from any of the books that you think is relevant to today's conversation that hasn't made its way into it? Because I think we've covered a lot of great stuff. Yeah, thank you for asking that. One of the things I love about Lovable, it's this book, it's Lovable, Cursive on the Cover, Big Red Heart. And uh, one of the reviews for Lovable on Goodreads says, great book, just not for men. (laughs) I just feel so fortunate that there are mastermind communities of men out there, high-achieving entrepreneurial men who have embraced this book and said, this is sort of our guidebook for becoming more truly ourselves, learning how to show up more vulnerably. The lovable is sort of staged in three acts, worthiness, belonging, and purpose. And you and I have talked a lot about worthiness and belonging. But one of the things the book talks about too is ways to get a clearer sense of what we're passionate about and what we want to give our energy to in our lives, what our purpose is. And I think men are sort of expected to know what their purpose is. And that purpose is often very much defined by certain metrics of success. So I think Lovable is also a book that helps men get connected with the idea that that our purpose is to give our energy to the things that most enliven and bring joy to our souls. That's our purpose, to give our energy to the things that most enliven and bring joy to our souls. And I don't think a lot of men get permission to do that. And so I would just want any guy listening... If day to day is feeling no, like instead we dwell on the yeah. mistakes that we made and the right. and all the screw ups that we did. We just sit there and we fester in it. Yeah, at least you I got do. it. <laughs> That's, and you know, all of these conversations and books like yours really give the tools for us to be able to move through these things where we don't have to feel stuck. It's not a sentence. It's penance. It's an opportunity. That's what I think is the difference for me is assigning my worth to those things. And now with books like yours and front row dads and all these kinds of tools to be able to pull yourselves through some of those challenging times. The books are all over on Amazon. Lovable. The newest one is The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. That is a novel. 
is there any other resources, any other things that people should go get check out? And then if they want to get more connected with you online, I think you have some ways that they might be able to stay connected there as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wrote a book in between those two called True Companions, a book for everyone about the relationships that see us through. And so it's more of a relationship oriented book. And then I'm currently writing a new book in public online. It's called The Inner Gathering, A Guided Encounter with Your Original Self and Its Three Protectors. And I'm writing it on Substack with reader feedback instead of publishing house editorial feedback. It's a total blast. The first couple chapters are already up. DrKellyFlanagan.com, DrKellyFlanagan.com. The call to action in the header will take you right to that. That is so fun. That's very fun. Yeah, thanks. That's so cool. And what a great concept. So cool the work that and the direction that your work is headed. Guys, go get connected with Dr. Kelly. My last question for you, Dr. Kelly, is what does modern masculinity mean to you? About once a year, I lead a retreat weekend. A couple of years ago, we took a lunch break. I was heading out for burgers with a couple of guys. He said, you know what this morning is making me think? I used to think being a man was not being afraid of anything around you. And now I think maybe being a man is not being afraid of anything inside of you. And so I think the idea that it takes just as much bravery to face what's inside of you as it does to face what's outside of you. And us men are now being called on that journey. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, this has been a great conversation. If you guys enjoyed today's conversation, please leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you know somebody who would benefit from listening today, please send it to them. And then I would encourage you to take one thing from this conversation with Dr. Kelly and implement it and let us know how things go. But as always, we appreciate you being part of the Modern Masculinity family. We'll see you on the next one. Later, y'all.